Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. If you're new or visiting, it's great to have you with us. Uh, And in case you're wondering, yes, I do have a black eye. And in case you're wondering why I have a black eye, it was like this. There was 12 guys, they all pulled out knives. And then I woke up from my dream and remembered that I was at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and did an unco move and banged my eye into somebody's shoulder. So that's why I have a black eye. I'll give that back to you, Garris. Let me show you three laws. Here's the first law. Uh, speeding sign, the maximum you can go in this area is 110 kilometers an hour. This law, no alcohol can be sold or supplied to anyone under 18. It's against the law. And then this law, you are, it's illegal in Australia to put a sign up like this that says if, if your property's been stolen or lost, no questions asked. You can get fined for putting that, even if it's your pig. That's been lost. It's illegal to put up a sign that says no questions asked if a property's been stolen. Now, how do laws and commandments work? How do these laws and commandments work? Well, obviously, they tell us things we can do and can't do. But more than that, deeper than that, laws are this quick start guide to show us what the lawmaker wants to protect. Uh, They show us something the lawmaker believes is important and good for us. And often when we meet a law, we find it uncomfortable because the laws limit our freedom to do whatever we want. It cuts against our wishes. So I want to speed on the road past 110 if it's good conditions and there's no other cars. But the laws tell me I can't do that. And so we have this strong urge to reject laws and to say it's just a dumb law and laws are there to be broken. Or we focus on the specific words of the law to work out How little can I apply it? Like what particular situations does it apply to? How close to breaking it can I get without actually breaking it? Uh, Of course, sometimes laws are not good laws. Uh, They're badly worded, so it's not obvious why we have them or they're not effective at protecting something. Uh, Or sometimes laws are not good laws because they're not good for us. They're only good for the lawmaker. Uh, They only benefit the lawmakers. I can't help but feel it's tax time. I can't help but feel like a lot of our taxation laws and our property laws really benefit people who own multiple properties and own six, have six-figure salaries. And it turns out that the politicians who made those laws also own multiple properties, have six-figure salaries. But when it's, when it's good, when you get a good law, when law's done right, how does law help us? What does law do that helps us? It forces us to pause so we don't do whatever we want. We see what's at stake. We see what the law is trying to protect so we can keep it and protect that thing too. And not protect it in the smallest possible way, but in the maximum way. So let me ask you a question. Shout out an answer. What do you think these three laws are trying to protect? Let's start with the speeding sign. What is that law for? What's that trying to protect? Shout out your answer. Life. life. Who's life? Yep, the drivers and the other drivers. Yep, the passengers, everybody involved, pedestrians, everybody. Uh, Because not many of us can actually drive really, really fast safely. Rally car drivers can, but not many people can. What about the next one? Under 18, it's against the law to sell or supply alcohol. Also life. Yep. Brains, yep. 
So yeah, obviously, uh, when you're a kid, your brain is not fully formed. Alcohol affects your biochemistry, affects your brain, stop you making good decisions. We want to protect children and adolescents. What about the stolen pig? No questions asked. That's illegal to put no questions asked. What is that trying to protect? Trying to protect law? The property? What? (laughs) trying to protect the people. It's trying to protect justice. Justice, correct. Uh, you might desperately want your stolen pig back, but you can't say no. If someone's stolen your pig, they should stand trial. They should, you know, justice should be served on that person. It's not up to you to say, oh, justice doesn't matter in this situation. That's something that the police and the lawyers and the justice system has to say, even though you really want your pig back. That's what that one's trying to protect. Your precious pig. Uh, Deuteronomy 19, the part of the Bible that we're looking at, has got laws and commandments, and they show us what God wants to protect. They're about human life, justice, actions, and motives, and these are things that God wants to protect. These are things that God believes are important to us, to, important to Him and good for us. And, and God's not one of us. He's not another human who's limited or self-serving like we often are in our laws. God is perfect. God's our maker. God knows what's best for us and the best way for everyone to live. And so we're going to see this morning what God cares about so that we can care about it too. And I'm going to pray as we dive in. Why don't you pray with me? Our Father God, thank you that you speak, that you tell us what matters to you. You show us what you care about. Help us to care about it too. Uh, Help us take away all the distractions this morning, Lord, so that we can hear from you and from your word and learn to love the things that you love. Amen. A little bit of context. We're in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is written to ancient Israel about 1400 BC. And they're on the edge of the promised land, which is modern day Israel near the Jordan River. And their leader, Moses, is reminding them of God's commandments so they can live as God's people in the land. And they're meant to obey these laws exactly, uh, precisely to the letter. Uh, and the reason they're meant to obey the laws and commandments exactly is that they're God's people in covenant with him. So have a look with me in Deuteronomy 19. Come to verse 8. Deuteronomy 19. You need a Bible. We'll work our way through this. Deuteronomy 19 verse 8. If the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he promised on earth to your ancestors and gives you the whole land he promised them, because you carefully follow these laws I command you today to love the Lord your God and to walk always in obedience to him, then you are to set aside three more cities. So here they are. God's made this covenant, this deal, this agreement with them. I saved you from Egypt to be my people. You can continue to be my people. I'll bless you with flourishing life in the promised land. If you love me, obey me, keep my commandments, which are for your good. And the place they're meant to obey these commandments is in the promised land. So look at verse 1 of chapter 19. When the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he is giving you, and when you have driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, then set aside for yourself three cities in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So the place they obey is in the promised land. They're obeying God. God is their, their savior, their king. And the commandments, you see here, notice the commandments are limited. They're given to ancient Israel in a particular time and a particular place to obey exactly to the letter. We don't live in that time or that place. We don't live in the land of ancient Israel in 1400 BC. This is not for all people in all places, in all times, everywhere. But when we see what these laws from God protect, we can see what God cares about so that we can care about it too. 
That's how laws work. So three things that we'll see. First one, God cares about every human life. Uh, God has a plan to protect human life in the promised land. And it's for ancient Israel to set up three cities of refuge. So look at verse 2. Set aside for yourself three cities in the land the Lord your God has given you to possess. Determine the distances involved and divide into three parts the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, so that a person who kills someone may flee for refuge to one of these cities. This is the rule concerning anyone who kills a person and flees there for safety, anyone who kills a neighbor unintentionally without malice or forethought. Uh, so what are these cities for? If an ancient Israelite accidentally killed someone, you would go to one of these cities so that you'd be safe from the family or the friends of the person you killed from them taking revenge on you. Uh, verse 5, look at verse 5. For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him even though he's not deserving of death, since he did it to his neighbor without malice or forethought. This is why I command you to set aside for yourselves three cities. Uh, and the reason, verse 10, the reason is given in verse 10, do this so that innocent blood will not be shed in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance, and so that you will not be guilty of bloodshed. Uh, it may feel pretty primitive to us, though do remember this is from 1400 BC, quite a while ago. Uh, we've got a different system to protect innocent life. We've got AVOs and witness protection and police custody, and sometimes they work, sometimes not so well. But like every law, the point of this law is to force an Israelite to pause and to ask, what is this law trying to protect? What is at stake here? What does God want to protect? And the answer is human life, because God cares about every human life. And he gives these laws to his people to protect human life, every human life. Because if you see, there's three cities, and they're meant to set them up equal distance between everybody in the land. So it's easy for anybody to get to one of these if they needed to go to one of these cities. They're not only in the rich neighborhoods, you know, they're not only near the biggest ethnic groups or tribes in ancient Israel. They're close enough for everyone. Everyone lives close enough because God cares about every human life. Our humans are precious to God. We're made in God's image, like Him, to represent Him. We're His creatures that He crafted and He cares about us. And see how much God cares about human life here. He's proactive. Before they even enter the promised land, God has made a plan to protect life in the land. And He commands it. And he gives it to them as a law, so they'll pause to see what he wants to protect. And he tells them the reasons for it, and he holds them accountable for protecting it. God really cares about this. And since God cares about it, since God cares about human life, we should care too. Uh, I'm sure you can remember George Floyd's death when George Floyd was killed, the 25th of May, 2020. Uh, he went into a store to buy cigarettes with an allegedly counterfeit $20 note. The manager called the cops, and instead of asking, where did this note come from? Were you using it intentionally or accidentally? Instead of tracing the source of the note, the cops put him on the ground. And Officer Derek Chauvin put his knee on his neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, and he died. And there was international outrage. 
wasn't there? And, and it was, there were so many good reasons to feel furious at what happened. Uh, police brutality, systemic racism, how utterly unnecessary his death was. But I think one big reason for our outrage is that his life was treated as if it was cheap when it's not. His life was cheap, treated as if it mattered less than other people's lives when it didn't. And God cares about every human life, and so he calls us to protect life too. Now, the second thing God cares about is true justice. True justice. If an ancient Israelite accidentally killed someone, you need to protect them and not spill innocent blood. But what about if they killed them on purpose? Well, that's what verse 11 talks about. Have a look at verse 11. But if out of hate someone lies in wait, assaults and kills a neighbor, and then flees to one of these cities, the killer should be sent for by the town elders, be brought back from the city, and be handed over to the avenger of blood to die. Show no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood, so that it may go well with you. And jump down to verse 21. Look at verse 21 with me. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. I think that probably raises some concerns for us. It did for me when I first read this. There's no prison time here. There's no court of appeal. There's not even, it doesn't even seem like a trial in, in first reading. This is capital punishment where the avenger is given free reign to kill the murderer and the leaders of the city support him to do it. And God approves it. God even commands him to go and do it. Verse 13, verse 21, he's told not to show any pity, which is pretty surprising when the God who commands this is full of compassion and slow to become angry and quick to forgive. And, and that bit there about the eye for eye, foot for foot, hand for hand, I'm sure you know a famous line from Martin Luther King Jr. He said, an eye for eye leaves everybody blind. Doesn't this just perpetuate a cycle of violence? Uh, and, and isn't this the very opposite of what Jesus tells us to do with this very same commandment in the New Testament? When he tells us, don't retaliate, turn the other cheek, love your enemies instead of seeking revenge. Yes, that's all actually 100% true. This can be misused. But we've got to see what is this law protecting? What is it protecting? It's not protecting compassion it's protecting justice. So think about this. If you deliberately cut off somebody's hand, let's take the hand-for-hand hand bit. If you deliberately cut off someone's hand so they can't work, they can't grow crops, it's hard for them to raise their family, it's a really hard life for them in a time long before prosthetics, what is the fair punishment for that? What would be fair? It would be the same thing to happen to you. That would be fair punishment. What would be the wrong punishment? It would be to take an arm for a hand or to take a life for an eye. The point of this law is to limit punishment so it's only justice and not escalating violence. I think we get a really good example of this going bad in the book of Genesis from Lamech in Genesis 4.23. Lamech writes this poem to his two wives, and it's not a very romantic poem. Here's what he says. He says, Adar and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. That's not eye for eye, that's 
injustice that he's proud of. But God cares about true justice. He's got one more law here when to, to protect justice. If someone commits a crime and you're working out, was it malicious? Was it an accident? You need a trial with witnesses. I look at verse 15. Verse 15. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Two or three, not one. A little bit like our standard of being beyond reasonable doubt. I think that's the vibe here. God is actually preventing vigilante justice where an Israelite just runs off, takes matters in their own hands. There's a trial here with witnesses and the judgment is fair. It's fair punishment because God cares about true justice. And see how much God cares about that. He's proactive before they even enter the promised land. He's got provisions to protect justice. He commands it. He gives it to them as laws. So they'll pause and see what it's protecting. He tells them the reasons for it. He holds them accountable to protect it. God really cares about true justice. And so we should too. The next problem though is if a witness hates justice. That's verse 16. Look at verse 16. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. What's the law protecting here? It's protecting an Israelite from being falsely accused. Because if you got called to be a witness, and you know that if you lie, you will experience the same punishment as you tried to pass on, I'm pretty sure you're going to tell the truth. God's care about justice extends even to the witnesses. And this law, this situation also shows us the third thing God cares about, is that God cares about actions and motives. So that witness is lying in a court. They're lying in the court before the priests and the judges in the presence of God to ruin the life of a fellow Israelite. That action is so evil. But so is their motive, because verse 16 calls them a malicious witness. They're hostile, they're vindictive, that's what's driving their actions. Actions matter to God, and so do motives. And we saw the same thing with that axe bit. Uh, in that situation, you need to look at motives. Uh, was this, this death, was the, did they kill them intentionally, or was it accidental? Was it premeditated with hatred, or it wasn't? Because your, your motives affect your understanding of someone's actions. And it's not right to bypass motives and simply look at actions or, or simply look at results. The ends don't justify the means. If your action is wrong, it doesn't matter if it all worked out in the end. It's still wrong. If your motive is wrong, it doesn't matter if it all worked out in the end, it's still wrong. Doing the right thing for the wrong reason is still wrong. Uh, I was reflecting on this. I think I actually have the opposite danger in my own life. I think I care too much about motives. And so if I do something that's not good, but I was trying to do the right thing, 
I'm tempted to say, well, look, it's all fine because my motive was good. But no, actually, they both matter. God cares about every human life. God cares about true justice. God cares about actions and motives. And he really cares about this. He's proactive. He sets it up before they even come into the promised land. He commands it. He gives them laws so they'll pause to protect it. He tells them the reasons for it. He holds them accountable to protect it. And when we see how much God cares about this, it should lead us to care too. And when we see how much God cares about this, it adds an extra layer to the good news at the center of Christianity. It has this whole extra layer of understanding. Because God doesn't simply tell us how to live for our good. That would be astonishing enough if that's all he did. We'd be lost without God. We'd, we'd just be having our best crack at the best way to live. But God goes steps beyond that, infinitely more steps beyond that. God doesn't just tell us how to live. God becomes one of us. God shows us how to live for our good. In the person of his son, God came to this same group of people, ancient Israel, living in the promised land, in the covenant where they were meant to love God and obey the law exactly. And the God man, Jesus Christ, shows us what this is meant to look like. Because Jesus really cares about every human life, from the wealthy to the widow, from the strong to the sick, from the Pharisee to the prostitute. Jesus loves and welcomes and protects everyone. And he's furious at injustice. He confronts it every time he sees it. And he sees into people's hearts and he shows them their true motive and what's driving them. And he teaches us what these laws were for. Uh, to people who've missed the point of what these laws are protecting, you just get focused on how close do I get to breaking it? You know, what, how do I keep this in the minimum? He says, no, no, this is what the law is meant to protect. For example, this is what he says in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You know, the point of it was not to see if someone killed their fellow Israelite because they were angry or because it was an accident. The point is not to get angry at them in the first place because they're your brother or sister. And you wouldn't need laws that give justice if they followed this from Matthew 7 verse 12. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. There would be no injustice if everybody just did that. And rather than focusing on fair punishment, which is a good thing, but rather than focusing on it so tightly that you ignore every other consideration, Jesus says this, You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, of course, justice is important. It's so important. But even better than seeking justice is to choose willingly to experience injustice because you're trusting God and if it's good for the other person, if it loves the other person. Now, how does Israel respond? How does ancient Israel respond to this? How do their leaders respond to this? They do the complete opposite. Here's something from Matthew 26. 
Then the chief priests and the elders of the people schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. And those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders are assembled. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. Many false witnesses came forwards. And they succeed. They crucify Jesus. They really just abuse the legal system to murder Jesus because they don't care about his life. They get the right number of witnesses. The punishment fits the crime. But it's a false justice that gets served. And their motives are evil, but they've bypassed that. And so the God-man Jesus is murdered through unjust lies from people with evil motives. The very opposite of the things that God cares about and that God protects and that God calls his people to protect. Do you know what's even more astonishing? More astonishing the fact that Jesus comes and shows us how to live this. It's that Jesus knew this would happen and he chose to experience it. He chose to endure it for our good. If you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're kind of exploring what Christianity is about, that is so great that you're here. It's a great place to be. This is the center of Christianity. It's not about the laws. It's about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the heart of it. And at the cross, when Jesus experienced all that injustice, he also experienced true justice. Not from the religious leaders, but from God, his Father. Because what's the right punishment for sin? What's the right punishment for rejecting God? You know, if you were doing that eye for eye, hand for hand thing, what's the right punishment for rejecting God? Is it a slap on the wrist? Is it a warning to try harder next time? No, it's what Jesus experienced. It's death, his death and the wrath of God. That's what sin deserves. That's what true justice looks like. But it's astonishing, God himself, in the person of his son, poured our justice on himself. From a pure motive, from pure actions, for our human lives, true justice came from God on God. So at the cross, true justice has been given for our crimes. But justice was served on God, not on us. As Jesus turned the other cheek... As Jesus loved his enemies, even to the point of dying for them, for our good. And more astonishing still, Jesus resurrected from the dead. And about two months later, he sends his apostles to speak to the very people, the very Israelites that killed him. And this is what they say. Peter's speaking, one of Jesus' followers. And he says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. In the original language, it actually puts it this way. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made Jesus both Lord and Messiah, whom you crucified. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Isn't isn't it astonishing 
that the God who cares so much about every human life, about true justice, about actions and motives, the God who in Jesus Christ lost his life through injustice and lies from evil motives, that in that very act, God himself poured out true justice on himself. So without compromising his justice in any way, God offers forgiveness and life to the very same people that murdered him in Jesus. That's astonishing. That's astonishing that God would do this. That God endures the opposite of what he cares about to pour our just punishment on himself so we can now live his way. And that offer, that that promise is for you. It was for them. It's also for you. And if you trust this already, how astonishing that at the cross, true justice has been given for your crimes, for my sin and forgiveness and life and God in you, transforming you by the Holy Spirit is now yours in Christ Jesus. Only God could have ever done something like this. And if you don't trust this promise yet, this offer stands still. For anyone who will accept this, this is the center of Christianity. It's not about the laws. It's about the death and resurrection of Jesus for you. So you can trust Jesus as your savior and be forgiven and have life. And you can obey Jesus as your Lord. You can trust him as your savior, obey him as your Lord and obey him by caring about what God cares about and protecting the things that matter to God. And let me wrap up with a few suggestions of how we can protect and care about these very same things today as Christians who trust and follow God. God cares about every human life. How can we do the same thing? Well, let's protect every human life, especially the lives of those who can't speak up for themselves and protect their own lives, like minorities, like immigrants to Australia, like refugees, asylum seekers, uh, like people with disability, like the unborn with a devastating rate and acceptance of abortion in this country, like the elderly with an increasing number of laws that allow euthanasia, uh, which many studies have shown just place this huge pressure on elderly people to end their lives before they want to, so they're not a burden to people anymore. And there's much more to say about each of those issues. But at the very least, we should explore them and, and find out about them. And we should seek to protect human lives by praying to the God who's sovereign and by petitioning governments and by practicing a different way to live to the people around us to show what it looks like to care about every human life. What about true justice? How do we protect that? Well, I guess we can start by speaking honestly to each other and not being false witnesses even in our own conversations. And we can pray and petition the government and practice justice in this country and in our workplaces and in our families. But also being okay if we don't find justice everywhere. Because we know that God will judge every injustice and we don't live in a theocracy like ancient Israel did. But even better than seeking, as hard as this is, even better than seeking justice for yourself, being willing to turn the other cheek and love your enemies and experiencing injustice if it's going to honor God and if it's going to do good to the other person. And last of all, God cares about our actions and our motives 
How do we protect that? Well, ask God to show you your motives. Ask God to purify our motives. And let God tell us if our motives and our actions are pure, rather than justifying to ourselves whether they are or whether they're not. And in general, let's see what God loves and see what God hates. Let's care about it and protect it. So let's see what he cares about so that we can too. And not in the smallest possible way, but in the maximum way. Trusting that our maker, that our savior knows the best way for us to live and seeing what God cares about so we can care about it too. Let's pray. Our great heavenly father, thank you for showing us the things you care about here. Uh, Thank you for these super important things. We pray that we would care about every human life like you do. We pray that we would care about true justice like you do. We pray that we would care about our actions and our motives like you do. And we praise you so much, Lord, for pouring your justice on yourself in the person of your son so that we can be forgiven for how we failed to do this. And we can be welcomed into your family as your children. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for turning the other cheek when I was your enemy, when we were your enemy. We pray that you would help us to live by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to live for you and to care about what you care about every day of our lives. Amen.